The Myers-Briggs Type Indicator is the most popular personality test in the world. It's used regularly by Fortune 500 companies and lots of other organizations. Its language of personality types has inspired TV shows and online dating platforms. Yet experts in the field of psychometric testing have struggled to validate its results, let alone account for its success. Myers-Briggs was conceived in the 1920s by a pair of devoted homemakers, novelists, and amateur psychoanalysts, the mother-daughter team of Catherine Briggs and Isabel Briggs Myers. Their multiple-choice questionnaire would make its way from the smoke-filled boardrooms of mid-century New York to Berkeley, California, where it was administered to some of the 20th century's greatest creative minds. And it traveled on across the world to London, Zurich, Cape Town, Melbourne, and Tokyo. How did the homegrown Myers-Briggs questionnaire infiltrate our workplaces, our relationships, our internet, our lives? Mervy Emery, an assistant professor of English at McGill University, explores that story in her new book, The Personality Brokers, The Strange History of Myers-Briggs and the Birth of Personality Testing. The book is due out in September from Penguin Random House, and Professor Emery joins us in the McGill studio to talk about it. Thanks for coming in, Professor Emery. Thank you for having me. Despite the widespread popularity of Myers-Briggs, very few people know anything about the two people who devised it. Tell us a bit about Catherine Briggs and Isabel Briggs Myers and how they came to launch this personality test. So Catherine and Isabel were extraordinary women. Uh, they were college educated. They were ambitious. Uh, they were, I think, by virtue of the time and place that they were born, resigned to making their lives as homemakers and mothers. But both of them ultimately realized that this was unsatisfying. And they wanted to figure out how one could take the lessons that they had learned from raising children and managing their household relations, so how to keep a bunch of people with very different personalities all happy in closed quarters. And they wanted to figure out how they could make that skill useful. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the different ways in which they came to the indicator. So Catherine, who was born in 1875, uh, she then had Isabel um, in 1897. Um, was a deeply spiritual woman who wanted to find a way to excavate her soul. Um, and for her, the way to do this, or the way she decided to do it, was to follow the writings of uh, Carl Jung. Um, and she bought his book, Psychological Types, and she became completely besotted with his language of introverts and extroverts, thinkers and feelers, sensing and intuition. And she became fairly obsessed with him, too. Uh, to the point where she was sort of writing sexually obsessive fan fiction about him um, and was uh, started a pretty intense correspondence with him um, from her home in Washington, D.C. Uh, but for her, it was a deeply personal and, like I said, spiritual enterprise, and she didn't really think about the ways in which it might be used, uh, the ways in which it might be democratized. Um, her daughter, who she raised in her home uh, under a kind of... Um, Type, with a kind of type-inspired education. Uh, her daughter, who uh, entered the workforce during World War II, immediately saw the way that Jung's language of introversion and extroversion, sensing and thinking, uh, could be adapted for a personality test. And immediately after World War II, when the labor force in the US had exploded, personality tests were now incredibly popular because they promised employers that they could match workers to the jobs that were best suited to their personalities. And so she took what had been her mother's spiritual obsession, and she made it into a, a product. Uh, and she teamed up with a consultant in Philadelphia, a guy named Edward Hay, 
to sell this product. And that is really the origin point of where the Myers-Briggs indicator starts. But to my mind, it's this incredible marriage of religious belief, uh, of motherhood, and of, of um, consumerism, mid-century consumerism. Very interesting. In very broad strokes, for people who haven't taken the questionnaire, what are the different categories that make up the Briggs-Myers indicator, and what are they supposed to define? What traits are they supposed to define? Yeah, so there are uh, four different dimensions along which the indicator uh, indicates a person's personality. Um, uh, there is extroversion and introversion. Um, and what that definition is depends a little bit on uh, who administers the test to you. So in Carl Jung's original definition of introversion and extroversion, um, an extrovert was somebody who was uh, highly attuned to external circumstances. So someone who was always very willing to change their behavior uh, or the way in which they came off to adapt to external circumstances. Um, and an introvert was someone who believed that their subjectivity, their very strong sense of self, was what would guide them through the world. So they didn't want to be moved by external circumstances. Um, so the extrovert was a kind of chameleon, an actor, and the introvert was a, a sort of strong individualist. Now today, that's not what that category means at all. Today, we tend to think of an extrovert as being someone who's incredibly sociable, who likes doing group projects, and we tend to think of the introvert as the quiet sort of wallflower. Um, and that, I think, is often very, or, or has been very useful for companies that are trying to figure out how to, you know, staff teams with a mix of introverts and extroverts. So that's the first category. That's the one that most people are familiar with, I think. Um, the second one, uh, sensing versus intuition, uh, looks at the way in which uh, one processes information or the kind of information you take in. So do you take in information about the world using your senses, uh, you know, uh, sight, sound, touch, smell, taste? Um, and is that the kind of information that you use when you're making uh, to, to sort of understand what's going on in the world? Or do you use your intuition? Uh, do you have some kind of uh, pre-conscious or semi-conscious uh, understanding? Uh, of the world and of the people in it that you are uh, then using to understand what's going on. And then thinking and feeling is how you go about actually making decisions. So do you make decisions in a highly logical or rational kind of way? Or do you make decisions thinking about uh, how is it that the people who are affected by these decisions will feel? Um, and finally, the fourth category, and this was one that Isabel and her mother actually designed themselves, this is not part of Young's original vocabulary, is judging versus perceiving. So. Uh, are you someone who is more inclined to perceive things about the world first and then make decisions? Or are you someone that's more inclined to make decisions and then sort of try to figure out the ways in which the world justifies or does not justify those decisions that you've already made? Um, uh, and oftentimes that category uh, is applied in corporate contexts as um, how flexible are you? Uh, the, the judger is someone who seems a little bit uh, regimented, highly scheduled, a little bit inflexible, and the perceiver is often understood as somebody who um, likes to play things a little more loosey-goosey, is more flexible, can make sort of last-minute changes and accommodate um, people's unruly schedules and things like that. You mentioned that the, uh, the the Hay firm, I think it was. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Edward had, Hay and Associates. Okay, helped uh, initially commercialize it. How did it spread from the East Coast out to the West Coast and, and so on? Yeah, so this is part of the story that the book tells in its um, second section. Uh, and so, you know, Isabel started working with Hay, and Hay had many, many 
um, incredibly influential corporate clients. So some of his clients included General Electric, uh, Standard Oil, the New York Life Insurance Company. Um, and he started helping her sell the test to these corporate clients. And then she also started developing a kind of side business as a consultant. So she would administer the test to top executives, and then she would go in and tell them, well, the indicator says that you are a thinker. Um, and sometimes when you make decisions, it means uh, they will be perceived by people around you as being too cold or overly rational, and you, you're alienating your employees because of that. So she would go in and actually give them drills to do to help develop their opposite uh, trait so that thinkers could exercise a more feeling judgment when they were um, you know, explaining why they made decisions. So it kind of starts in those uh, uh, major New York corporations. And then there are a couple of different ways in which it spreads. Um, one way is that uh, her first major client is actually uh, the OSS, which is the precursor to the CIA in the US. And the OSS during World War II uh, has a station called Station S, where they are bringing uh, spies and administering all manner of personality tests to them in order to match covert operatives to the jobs that are best suited to their personalities. And so the two men running Station S, uh, um, a guy from Harvard named Henry Murray and his graduate student Donald McKinnon, uh, are one of the, McKinnon is one of the first purchasers of the Myers-Briggs, and he sort of introduces it to this military context. Um, and then McKinnon actually goes to Berkeley, where he buys a fraternity house, and he uh, has uh, very famous creative people, uh, actors, writers, architects, uh, spend a weekend in the fraternity house taking uh, personality tests to figure out what makes for a creative personality. So then he takes the indicator and brings it over to the West Coast. So that's one kind of line of dissemination. Um, and then the other line of dissemination is that Isabel is contacted by Henry Chauncey, who is the man that runs ETS, uh, the Educational Testing Service, which makes the SAT. Um, and Chauncey is very interested in finding a personality test that will become as wildly popular and utterly necessary to higher education as the SAT was, right? I mean, the SAT is a cognitive test. He wants to find a personality test. For those not familiar with the U.S. system, SAT stands for Scholastic Aptitude Test. Yes, Is that that's right? Exactly it's right. widely used for college applications It's, in it's the pretty US. much a, it's, it's almost, I think, I would say 90% of the universities in the U.S. require that you take the SAT in order to apply for admission. Um, and so in the late 50s and the early 60s, he is disseminating uh, the, the Myers-Briggs as a kind of um, – uh, as a, a test that they're researching or a, a, an inventory that they are researching um, to many, many schools, hospitals, uh, military operations, um, corporations. Uh, so, so he's really helping it get a foothold in all of these, uh, all of these East Coast uh, institutions. Um, so that takes us up to about the 70s. Uh, and then it's in the late 70s, and Isabel Briggs Myers dies in 1980, but right before she dies in the late 70s, um, she sells the test to a company called uh, CPP uh, um, that's out in the West Coast. And they basically start distributing it uh, pretty, like, willy-nilly uh, to uh, anyone who really wants it. Um, and so this includes a lot of the kind of lifestyle management, self-care gurus that have been sort of populating the West Coast since the 60s. Um, 
Uh, it includes uh, churches and monasteries. Um, uh, again, you know, high schools, uh, even elementary schools at this point. And so really once CPP starts distributing it, uh, you see sales of the indicator sort of explode uh, after Isabel dies. So that's the sort of quick story. <laughs> Some studies have found that when people take the test and then take it again sometime later, maybe even just a few weeks later, um, they often come out with a different personality type. So. If that's the case, how reliable can this be as an indicator of underlying personality? I mean, I think there are two answers to that question. So first, the test-retest uh, reliability, which is what you're referring to, is around 50 percent, uh, which is not at all acceptable, I think most psychometricians would say, for any kind of psychological test. Um, and in that sense, it's not at all uh, reliable or valid. Um, now, the question of how close does it get to any kind of underlying personality means that you have to buy that, one, there is some kind of underlying personality, and two, that an instrument like Myers-Briggs can get to it, and three, that the categories that Myers-Briggs is offering you are the right, and I'm putting air quotes around that, the right categories for thinking about someone's personality. Um, so one of the one of the major criticisms of the test when it was being vetted by ETS in the late in the early 60s um, was that the way that Isabel Briggs Myers and her mother had created the questions as proxies for something like extroversion or introversion didn't actually measure what they said it was measuring. All those questions measured was how talkative you were. Um, or, you know, another very common criticism was that the sensing and intuition didn't actually measure anything like how you process sensory input or whether or not you follow your, uh, your impulses, but really it just, ma it just um, measured how sort of conscientious you were. Um, and uh, some people even argued it only measured how, like, politically liberal you were. Um, so I think there's good reason to be incredibly skeptical about the design of the test as well as the categories that it's asking us to think are the constitutive categories of our personality. Um, but I would also say that uh, from immersing myself in many situations where people use Myers-Briggs, I think people find it extraordinarily helpful. Um, and part of the argument that the book makes is that the Myers-Briggs is a technology of the self. Uh, it offers people a language for self-knowledge and self-management. Um, and in that way, it is extremely powerful, so powerful, in fact, that I think the question of reliability or validity almost doesn't matter. Interesting. So I guess that helps explain why it remains so popular today. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think it speaks a very, very seductive language of self-understanding. And I think once you have been seduced by that language, it doesn't really matter whether you think it's true or not. And in that way, I think there are very strong allegiances between the way people talk about Myers-Briggs and the kind of religious imagination that Catherine Catherine Briggs had when she designed it, which was that this is something that you just believe in. Whatever the evidence says doesn't really matter. It would kind of be like looking for evidence of God. Mm -hmm. So do you think it makes sense for uh, companies and organizations to continue to be using it as a tool in, in some way to, to screen or, or um, as you put it earlier, figure out you know, um, how to put together teams, that kind of thing? I mean, I, I 
I don't really think it, it makes sense, which isn't to say that people won't continue doing it. I'm sure they I'm sure they will. Um, I guess what I'm kind of allergic to uh, is the idea that our workplaces should be colonizing our psychological livelihoods. Um, I don't really want my workplace to be testing my personality, and I don't want them to be using those insights to then figure out how it is that they want me to work. Um, and so to me, that represents a kind of intrusion that's absolutely typical of late capitalism, um, but that I would want us to think about resisting more strongly. Um, but like I said, they're going to they're going to keep on doing it. So it doesn't. <laughs> I mean, the only thing that will stop anyone from using Myers-Briggs is when another newer and sexier instrument is designed. <laughs> mm -hmm. By the way, I understand you're leaving McGill this summer to become an associate professor at University of Oxford. We'll be sorry yeah. to see you go, but wish you well in England. I will miss you all, too. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.